went, now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the third episode of season six. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview episode with Harona Wendy Joseph QC. It's certainly gotten some fantastic feedback so thank you to everyone who has listened and reached out to me on the back of that episode. It's back to business this week and fair warning... This episode is probably going to be a little longer than usual, but before we get there, as always, let's break the ice a little bit. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is this week's Dad Fact. If it doesn't move and it should, use WD-40. If it moves and it shouldn't, use duct tape. We've all got a little bottle of WD-40 everywhere, haven't we? And duct tape. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. Satsuji Haiku. This week's murderous haiku comes courtesy of listener Deborah on Twitter. Two boys early morn, toasting fork to do the deed. Blood spills run away. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of five, seven, and five. It's also meant to be read in one breath. Feel free to send me your own murderous haikus, as Deborah did, and I'll read them out on a future episode. With my intro icebreakers complete, let's get into it. This week's case was suggested via email on December 1st, 2021 by listener Millie M. Apologies again for never replying to your initial email, Millie. We're back in England's capital city of London this week. Specifically, we're in the East London suburb of Barking. Here are five quick-fire facts about barking. Number one, the well-known phrase, you're barking mad, originated in barking. Number two, Barking Abbey, a former monastery, is known as one of the most important nunneries in the country. Number three, on September 3rd, 1878, the iron ship Bywell Castle ran into the paddle steamer Princess Alice in Galleon's Reach, downstream of Barking Creek. Between 600 and 700 people died. Number four, David Evans, known more commonly as The Edge, was born in Barking. If you don't know who I'm talking about, he's the lead guitarist of the Irish rock band U2. And finally, in at number five, Barking Town Square won the 2008 European Prize for Urban Public Space. Not a bad achievement. The 2011 census data indicated a population of 59,068. And before we properly get going, let me advise you that this episode contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners, including murder, date rape, and homophobia. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our story this week focuses on the life and crimes of one Stephen Port, a man who would later go on to be dubbed by the media as the Grinder Killer. Grinder is something you might have heard of, but for those who aren't aware, it's the world's largest social networking app for the LGBTQIA community. The most logical app to compare it to, I believe, would be Tinder, but having used neither, I can't accurately comment on the similarities or differences between the two. Having launched back in March 2009, 
Grindr now has 11 million users. So from a marketing perspective, it makes sense as to why the media dubbed Stephen Port the Grindr killer. It's the most known one. The truth, however, is that Stephen used a variety of similar dating and escort service apps to find the men he would go on to kill. I mention this only because I don't want you to be misled and think that Grindr was the only app he used, because it wasn't. Born on February 22, 1975, in Essex coastal city Southend-on-Sea, simply Southend, Stephen Port and his parents moved 30 miles west to the East London town of Dagenham when he was a one-year-old. I searched to see if Stephen had any siblings and I found one article that indicates he has an older sister. Whether or not she's his only sibling, I couldn't confirm, but it's neither here nor there. Childhood was likely not something Stephen enjoyed. Unusually quiet, his mum once raised concerns about her son being deaf as he rarely spoke up or responded to verbal keys. If you take a look online at pictures of him, you can see that he's ever so slightly boss-eyed. I don't mean that in a nasty way. I myself sometimes have a bit of a lazy eye, especially when I'm tired. But Stephen's right eye is angled ever so slightly inwards, as if it's looking more towards his nose than looking straight forward. He was heavily bullied at school and it wouldn't surprise me if that was the reason why. The fact he was bullied on such a regular basis is what likely led him to isolate himself from other children and struggle to make friends. A quiet student, Stephen kept all of his energy reserved for when he returned home. It was there where he felt comfortable enough to let loose and play with his many toys. Playing with kids' toys was a trait he would take into adulthood, but let's be honest, a lot of us do that, don't we? Look how popular adult Lego sets are these days. They're constantly out of stock. There's a new Titanic one that's about 10,000 pieces. By the time Stephen finished school at 16, he decided that he wanted to further his education at college rather than diving headfirst into the world of full or part-time work. Originally, his intention was to study art, a passion of his, but the ongoing costs of sending their son to art college became too much of a financial burden for Stephen's parents, so he was forced to unenroll. Still wanting to maintain his creativity, Stephen opted to go down the route of becoming a chef, something that took him two years of training to achieve. Once fully trained, he secured a job working as a chef in East London's West Ham district. The job was based at West Ham Bus Garage, one of the largest bus garages in Europe. Whilst working there, Stephen was part of the chef team assigned the role of helping celebrities prepare their meals on BBC One's cooking reality show Celebrity Masterchef. In the episode, he can be seen in the background helping JLS singer J.B. Gill and EastEnders actress Emma Barton preparing meatballs for a large group of bus drivers. If you want to watch it, I believe it was episode 3 of season 9, which aired in the UK on Thursday, June 19th, 2014. That date is worth remembering, and I'll come back to why shortly. Stephen's sexuality was something he might have been reserved about making public, as he only came out as gay in his mid-twenties. There's not much information available about his sexuality online, other than confirming he is gay, but seeing as he went through puberty in the 1980s, one wonders if the increasingly homophobic and sensationalist reporting at the time played a part in Stephen's decision not to come out until after the turn of the millennium. One crazy fact I found out while researching this case was that Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government introduced Section 28 of the Local Government Act in 1988. 
it was brought in to prohibit the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. Perhaps I'm just a bit naive or simply too young, but I'd never even heard of Section 28. I was incredibly shocked and disgusted at what I read. Maybe that law also played into why Stephen was bullied. I mean, homophobic abuse in schools was prevalent at the time. By the time the noughties came around, Stephen was still living at home with his parents in Dagenham. That changed in around 2007, when he was about 32. He finally moved out and rented a flat in Barking, four miles or so west of Dagenham. The areas are synonymous with one another as they both fall within the London borough of Barking and Dagenham. The areas also share a police force, Barking and Dagenham Police. They play a huge role in this story, so please remember that as well going forward. Stephen's ground floor flat on Cook Street benefited from having its own outdoor patio style area, whereas the two flats directly above him only had small balconies. To supplement his income as a chef at the bus depot, Stephen also reportedly worked as a male escort in the gay community and had numerous profiles, both real and fake, on several online dating apps. In each of his profile pictures was a man with a full head of hair. It was short and blonde, but what anyone who viewed it didn't realise was that it wasn't just his name and age that was sometimes a lie. Underneath the blonde toupee was an immensely insecure man in his 30s who would go to great lengths to cover up his baldness. With his confidence at an all-time high, partly down to his numerous hookups and partly to his professional fitted hairpiece, Stephen decided to up the ante one evening in the summer of 2014. On Friday, June 13th, 2014, with his web browser open and awaiting its instructions, Stephen decided to search the following. Drug rape. Date rape drug. Gay teen knocked out and raped. Unconscious boys rape videos. Boys being drug raped. Unconscious porn videos, amongst others. Not exactly a run-of-the-mill web searches. He also read through several online articles about men who had been charged with sex offences. Once his dark searches had been completed, he signed into a fake profile on sleepyboy.com, a website that lists gay, bisexual and transgender escorts. Stephen's preferred type of men are known as twinks, young gay men who are typically effeminate. Personally, I had never heard that term before, and as far as I can tell, it isn't treated as being a slur, but if I am wrong, please accept my apologies and let me know. After browsing the catalogue of men in his desired category for a while, Stephen finally settled on a young 23-year-old man named Anthony Walgate. Originally from Hull in the East Riding of Yorkshire, Anthony had aspirations of becoming a world-famous fashion designer, a line of work extremely close to his heart. Anthony obtained a degree in fashion and design at Middlesex University, a location almost 200 miles south of his home city, and was described as being someone who would always manage to make people laugh and get them smiling. Not one to ever shirk a challenge, Anthony threw himself into everything he did with both feet, especially with all things creative. To earn himself some extra money, Anthony had set up an escort profile on sleepyboy.com and on occasion met with clients. When he received an offer from a prospective client asking him for his services on Tuesday, June 17th, 2014, however, Anthony had no idea that he was about to accept a meeting with a future serial killer. Stephen had offered Anthony £800 to spend the evening with him, an offer too good to turn down. The message read, Hiya, are you free to come to Barking Tuesday night for an overnight? 
please send some pics. Before heading over to Barkin, Anthony had briefly sent a few messages to his friend in which he joked that he might get killed. Stephen met Anthony at Barkin Rail Station and the pair walked the eight-minute journey back to the flat at Cook Street. The precise chain of events that happened over the next day or two is known only to Stephen Port. What we do know is that Stephen drugged Anthony with gamma-hydroxybutyrate, known more commonly as GHB, or GBE. I think I've discussed GHB before on the show, but to briefly summarise, it's a central nervous system depressant that has a tendency to incapacitate its users as a result of its sedative effects. For that reason, it's also known as a date rape drug. Stephen raped Anthony after slipping him an excessive amount of GHB before finally giving him a volume so large that it caused him to die from an overdose. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Remember earlier when I said June 19th, 2014 was a date to keep in your head? The same day the Celebrity Masterchef episode aired with Stephen Port in the background ended up being the same day he made an anonymous phone call to the emergency services to report a passed out male outside an apartment building on Cook Street. It was around 4am, 4.10am when the call was made. The operator who answered knew almost instantly that there were holes in the story given, but he went along with it as best he could. Stephen explained that he had driven past the apartment building and spotted what he described as a young boy who appeared to have collapsed in the street and possibly had a seizure. When asked where he had seen the boy, Stephen said 4758 Cook Street. Not knowing what he meant, the operator repeated 47, to which Stephen replied yes. For a little bit of context, the apartments are split into separate blocks. Flats 47 to 58 are together in one block, flats 59 to 70 are in another, and so on. The strange thing is that when the operator attempted to clarify the address again later in the call, Stephen said he didn't know which flat number the boy was outside of, despite saying 47 earlier. The operator said as much, and Stephen said, yes, sorry, 47. It's baffling to think that Stephen murdered poor Anthony, dragged his body to the front door, dumped it right outside, and then phoned 999 whilst pretending he didn't live there and was simply driving past at four in the morning. When the paramedics arrived, they briefly worked on Anthony before pronouncing him dead shortly before 8am. One of the emergency services personnel at the scene was Mr Anthony Neal, who had his suspicions about the death from the get-go. The way Anthony's body was positioned didn't make sense for someone who had allegedly had a seizure. He was sat upright with his legs crossed, with a cool body temperature of 24 degrees Celsius. That meant Anthony had been dead for a few hours at least. Mr Neal said, There was nothing I could do. The way it was positioned didn't add up. If someone had a seizure, they wouldn't be sat upright with the legs crossed. I called my control room to get the police down because it was an unexplained or suspicious death. Mr Neal then allegedly attempted to explain his concerns to the two police officers who subsequently arrived on the scene, but he was quickly dismissed whilst they secured the perimeter and set up a crime scene. One of the officers would recall how there was bruising on Anthony's body. When questioned by the officers, Anthony was found outside his flat after all, Stephen told them he was the anonymous caller, but swore that he didn't know Anthony. Anthony's mum Sarah was on holiday in Turkey at the time her son died and only found out on the Sunday, three days after his body was found. Her phone had been switched off 
and I can't even begin to imagine how much her heart sank when she saw the hundreds of missed calls she'd had when it was finally turned back on. It was Sarah's other son, Paul, who broke the news to her about Anthony's sudden death. She immediately phoned Barking and Dagenham Police for an update, but they couldn't even tell her how Anthony had died at that point. All they said was that his death wasn't being treated as suspicious. In Sarah's opinion, the local police refused to properly investigate Anthony's death from the very start. Stephen remained in the clear for a full week until one of Anthony's friends spoke with a police officer and explained how he'd met one of his sleepy boy clients a couple of days before his body was found. It didn't take long for the detectives to realise it was Stephen Port whom Anthony had met, the very man whose flat he was found outside of. The same man who a week earlier had denied even knowing Anthony. Stephen was then arrested on June 26, 2014 and charged with perverting the course of justice after admitting that he did know Anthony and had met him before his death. The story he gave was so ridiculous in its nature that it makes me think, how could anyone have possibly believed it? Stephen said he hired Anthony for the evening and shortly after he arrived, his guests started taking GHB, something he continued to do all evening. A couple of hours later, he got sick and passed out in Stephen's bed. Not knowing what else to do, Stephen said he left Anthony in bed and went to work his night shift. Anthony's mum Sarah made a great point in a BBC documentary I watched when she said, how weird would it be to leave a stranger in your flat alone while you head out to work for eight hours? Only upon his return home after his shift did Stephen realise or say that he realised that Anthony had passed away. It was a result of him panicking as to why he'd positioned his body outside his flat and then called the emergency services. Believing his ludicrous story, the police released Stephen on bail after taking a sample of his DNA for their records. They also confiscated Stephen's laptop as well as all of Anthony's clothes and personal possessions, including his laptop. Sarah went on to explain in the aforementioned documentary that the police never checked either of the two men's laptops and they kept Anthony's possessions in storage for almost three years before they were returned to his mum. Some of the clothes had developed mouldy patches due to poor storage conditions. Anthony's cause of death could not be confirmed at first. It wasn't until two months had passed after his body was found that his cause of death was finally confirmed to be the result of a fatal GHB overdose. If Stephen's laptop had been checked at the time, his ghastly online searches would have been found and he would not have been discounted as a murder suspect. More importantly, this could have been treated as a murder and not just a non-suspicious drug overdose that they, I guess, thought was self-inflicted. Furthermore, the lives of three young men would more than likely have been saved. Stephen was eventually sentenced in March 2015 after pleading guilty to perverting the course of justice by denying that he knew Anthony. He was handed a four-month jail sentence but was released on license after two. What the police didn't know was that by the time he was handed his sentence, he'd already murdered another two young men. The first of whom was a 22-year-old Slovakian national named Gabriel Kovare. Gabriel moved to the UK from his home nation in June 2014 with aspirations of becoming a translator for the NHS. He'd not long finished a university course in Slovakia before moving here. Needing somewhere to stay, Gabriel turned to the gay community for help and joined several networking sites to find someone he could lodge with. Eventually, he found a man named John Pape who had a spare room he was willing to let out. Described by John as being intelligent, articulate and sweet-natured, Gabriel met him and moved into the room shortly after. The pair got on well, 
But after six weeks, Gabriel informed John out of the blue that he was going to move out. Not one to pry, John didn't ask any further questions. So where did Gabriel go, I hear you ask? He moved in with none other than Stephen Port at 47 Cook Street. I assumed they met online. Ryan Edwards, one of Stephen's neighbours at Cook Street, befriended Gabriel after being introduced by Stephen immediately after he moved in. Ryan and Gabriel would message each other on occasion until the communication unexpectedly stopped without warning a few days later. Concerned, Ryan approached Stephen to ask if he'd heard from him. He was no longer at the flat. Stephen cautiously explained that Gabriel had met another man and had decided to move in with him. That was a stopgap to satisfy Ryan during their face-to-face meeting because a much longer message was then sent over text once Ryan had returned home. The truth, so Stephen said, was that Gabriel had returned home to Slovakia and died of a sudden and mysterious illness. It must have been exceptionally sudden for him to die so quickly after arriving home. Ryan was asked not to post anything about it on social media as he didn't want Gabriel's family to see it. They had enough on as it was, he said. It won't surprise you to hear that Stephen had fabricated that story. Gabriel hadn't gone back to Slovakia. He'd been drug-raped by Stephen Port, who once again used GHB as his drug of choice before being given a fatal amount of the drug and dying from an overdose. Exactly like Anthony Walgate. A few hundred yards from Stephen's flat is St Margaret's Parish Church and the ruins of a historical abbey. After killing Gabriel, Stephen moved his body to the church grounds and dumped it against the perimeter wall. As Anthony's had been, Gabriel's body was placed in an upright sitting position. On August 28, 2014, a dog walker named Barbara Denham was walking her usual route around the church and abbey grounds when she spotted Gabriel's body in the distance against the far wall. She thought it was someone asleep at first, but as she got closer, she realised something was wrong. He wasn't moving or breathing, and his skin was cold. Barbara recalled feeling that something was not quite right with how he was dressed. It looked almost as if someone else had dressed him, and I'm not talking about a mutual thing. I mean dressing them without their cooperation. Again, like Anthony, Gabriel's phone was missing, and the police, when summoned, dismissed it straight away as being a drug overdose. More importantly, they believed it to be a self-inflicted drug overdose, and the death was therefore not considered suspicious. There's a bit of a pattern developing here, and it will continue. The small bottle of GHB Stephen had planted on Gabriel helped to further confirm what had happened in the officers' minds. Once they had identified Gabriel, the police paid a visit to his last known address. The move to Cook Street was likely made off the books, as the officers paid a visit to John Pape's home rather than Stephen Port's. John was informed of Gabriel's passing, and once more, the police reiterated that it was not being treated as a suspicious death. Far from happy with that explanation, John decided to do some amateur sleuthing online, as I'm sure we all would in that situation. In a search engine, John typed in, Unexplained deaths barking, and was taken aback when one of the first results was a link to an article titled, Man Dies in Unexplained Circumstances in Barking. It was an article about the death of Anthony Walgate two months earlier. Making a note of the address where Anthony's body was found, John opened up Google Maps and typed Cook Street Barking into it. At that moment, he realised how similar the two men's deaths were. They had both died from drug overdoses, and not just from any drug. Both died after overdosing on GHB, a drug that on average leads to around only three deaths per year. 
The other remarkable thing was the close proximity in which their respective bodies were found. Two young men of a similar age and build, dying within two months of each other as a result of a GHB overdose, found within a hundred or so yards of each other? Surely that was more than just a coincidence. It seems obvious now, but at the time, the police didn't link the two deaths nor treat them as suspicious. Another missed opportunity from the police was to reach out publicly to the gay community to let them know what was happening and to be careful when meeting people online. If they had done that, Ryan Edwards, Stephen's neighbour, could have provided vital evidence by showing them the messages sent to him not only from Stephen, but from Gabriel. Again, even after two deaths, potentially two more lives could have been saved. With two murders now to his name, both of which he'd gotten away with, Stephen didn't waste any time striking again. A week after killing Gabriel, he started looking for another man to meet. This time he used a profile he'd set up on FitLads, another social networking slash hookup website aimed at gay, bisexual and non-heterosexual men. It was there that he stumbled across the profile of 21-year-old aspiring chef Daniel Whitworth. Originally from Gravesend in northwest Kent, Daniel was an only child raised by his father and worked at Reynolds Fitness Spa. One source I used stated that Stephen reached out to Daniel on September 3rd, 2014 and asked him to meet him for dinner or drinks. Stephen's rationale was to enable Daniel to meet him and see for himself that he wasn't some psycho. Yeah. He actually said that. The only reason I question that date is because, if it's true, it may have been the case that Stephen and Daniel met on more than one occasion. Regardless, at some point in mid-September, Stephen used his previous MO on Daniel and killed him with a fatal overdose of GHB. Hauntingly, Daniel's Twitter profile is still active, with the last tweet he ever sent still being available for the world to see. It was tweeted on September 14th, 2014, and reads, Found an orchard down Jeskins, taking a bag home, then there's a winking face, followed by the hashtag, fresh is best. The image attached to the tweet is one of Daniel in a Jack Daniels top, a zipper jacket and jeans, taking a bite out of an apple. Six days later, on September 20th, 2014, his body was found in almost the exact same place Gabriel Cavari's was in the same church and abbey grounds. Get this, Daniel's body was even found by the same dog walker, Barbara Denham. Imagine that. Talk about being anxious to walk your dog. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Sat upright in a prone position with a bottle of GHB planted on him as Gabriel had, the one big difference this time was that Daniel had an apparent suicide note on his person. The note said that Daniel was in a relationship with Gabriel and the pair had been using GHB together three weeks earlier with disastrous unintentional consequences for Gabriel. Unable to live on with the guilt, Daniel explained that he had now taken his own life. Stephen was going to great lengths to tie all of these deaths together without placing any of the blame on himself. He messed up when he wrote the fake suicide note though, as he explicitly wrote, don't blame the guy I was with last night. The only purpose that served was to make himself a suspect once the police figured out he was the person referenced in the note. Like with Anthony and Gabriel's friends and family, Daniels were advised that he had died from a self-inflicted drugs overdose, however this time it was an intentional one as far as they were concerned. 
A post-mortem conducted later confirmed there was some bruising on Daniel's body, specifically under both arms, which was consistent with his body being manhandled and likely dragged. It was suspected the bruising had occurred before Daniel passed away. That suggests Stephen drugged Daniel enough to incapacitate him, moved him to the Abbey grounds, and then administered more GHB before planting the bottle on him and then leaving him to die. Police sent the signature part of the suicide letter to Daniel's dad and stepmom, who advised they could not confirm whether or not it was their son's handwriting. All they knew was the way the letter was written was so matter-of-fact and cold that their gut feeling told them it wasn't written by Daniel. Daniel's family were then advised that the handwriting would be sent off to be analysed to confirm whether it was indeed his. That expert analysis was never conducted and it was later revealed at Stephen's trial that Barking and Dagenham Police had put it on record that Daniel's family had confirmed the suicide note was written by him. At the inquest into Daniel Whitworth's death, Coroner Nadia Passard recorded an open verdict, which establishes the occurrence of a suspicious death, but does not specify the cause. Despite the accompanying note, Nadia was not convinced it was suicide. She said, I have some concerns surrounding Whitworth's death which have not been answered by the police investigation. Most concerning are the findings by the pathologist of manual handling prior to his death. The bedsheet he was found wrapped in was not forensically analysed and the bottle of GBL which was found near him was also not tested for fingerprints or DNA. GBL is short for gamma butrolactone, a drug closely related to GHB and by the way, to not test something for DNA in 2014, it makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? Daniel's stepmom Mandy asked what the next step was in the process once the open verdict had been reached, but was advised there was nothing else that could be done. Gabriel's old landlord, John Pape, grew more concerned upon hearing the news of Daniel's death, especially after finding out how incredibly similar it was to the deaths of Gabriel and Anthony. He contacted the police as he felt he was potentially in danger due to his links to Gabriel, but was assured none of the deaths were murders or being treated as suspicious. How bad is that? The death total at this point in the story is three, and the similarities are there for all to see. Still, nothing was done to prevent Stephen Port from striking one more time 12 months later. Jack Taylor was a 25-year-old forklift truck driver who lived at his family's home in Dagenham. The youngest of three children, Jack had two sisters who loved him dearly. They said he always looked out for them and, despite his age, always felt like more of an older brother. A caring young man who always had a cheeky smile on his face, Jack was immensely popular amongst his friends and peers. On Saturday, September 12, 2015, he went on a night out with his closest friends, as he would on any given weekend. His parents weren't too concerned at first when he didn't arrive back home on Sunday morning. He'd clearly had a great time and was likely just sleeping it off somewhere. By the time Sunday evening came around, however, concerns rapidly grew as Jack had still not returned home or been in contact. Giving him a little bit of extra time, Jack's mum waited until Monday to ring Donna, one of his older sisters, to ask if she'd heard from him. In a heartbreaking turn of events, Jack's mum heard a knock at the door while she was on the phone to Donna. It was the police. They informed her that Jack's body had been found and he was pronounced dead at the scene, with the cause of death being a drug overdose. Donna heard the whole thing on the other end of the phone. Once they had processed what they had been told, Jack's family got together and decided they weren't happy with the police's explanation. Jack was so anti-drugs that it didn't make sense for him to die from a self-inflicted overdose. 
Despite that, the coroner revealed that a needle mark was found on Jack's arm. That tied up with the fact a syringe was found on his person, along with a packet of white powder. Stephen had matched with Jack on Grinder and spoke to him via the app on Sunday, September 13th, 2015. The fact that he used Grinder to commit his final murder is likely another reason why the media went with the Grinder Killer as his nickname. The pair then met and Stephen did exactly what he'd done before. This time he dumped Jack's body in a slightly different place within the church and abbey grounds but in the exact same seated position. For good measure he'd placed a bottle of GHB on him too. To the police it was an open and shut case. Jack had died from a self-inflicted drug overdose administered via a syringe in his arm. Luckily Jack's two sisters would not let it go something that ultimately led to Stephen Port finally being caught. They were told that no investigation into Jack's death was ongoing when they contacted the police almost two weeks after he had died. As John Pape had, the two sisters found out about the three similar deaths that had happened a year earlier, and they also connected the dots. They were eventually taken to the location where their brother's body was found and told that CCTV footage was being analysed that appeared to show Jack walking from Barking Rail Station towards the church and abbey with another man. After a lot of rejection, the sisters insisted that an image of the unknown man be made public in the hope that someone could identify him. Someone phoned the police and explained that they believed the man was Stephen Port and he was subsequently arrested and brought in for questioning. To think they had his DNA on file as soon as Anthony Walgate's body was found outside his flat is crazy as to why it was never tested. The coroner even asked that question in the inquest into Daniel Whitworth's death. The answer was that the police didn't feel the need to scrutinise the bedsheet he was found in as they didn't suspect any third party involvement. You can probably tell that a lot of controversy surrounds how the police handled these deaths and how more thorough action could have been taken that would likely have led to multiple lives being saved. Anthony's mum Sarah has stated that she believes the police are homophobic. She said, I genuinely believe that if Anthony had been a girl left outside like trash, they would have put a lot more effort into it a lot more effort. As they were all young boys, they did nothing. On October 15th, 2015, shortly before 9.30pm, Stephen was interviewed at Dagenham Police Station. He denied being involved in the deaths of all four men and even denied knowing any of them. I'm no body language expert, but if you watch the footage of the interview online, it's clear as day that he's lying through his teeth. He refuses to make eye contact with the interviewing officer and instead focuses intently on any little piece of paper put in front of him. Stephen also denied having ever walked through the abbey area of the church grounds, despite living a few hundred yards away. He said it looked too spooky to visit, and thought it was private land. When the officer explained how rare GHB overdoses were, and the fact that four men had died of just that within close proximity of his house, one of which was outside his front door, it's laughable how Stephen continued with his denial. The no doubt frustrating initial interview lasted around 22 hours based on the timestamps before the video stopped online. Two further victims of Stephen came forward after learning of his arrest. The first claimed that Stephen had date raped him in 2012 after spiking him with a drug he suspected as being GHB. He was only 19 at the time. The second claimed he'd had his drink spiked by Stephen and only remembers waking up a while later with no clothes on. By the time his trial came around in 2016, Stephen had six more counts of administering a poison, seven charges of rape, and four charges of sexual assault added to his initial four murder charges. 
In total, it is believed that at least 11 men were drugged and sexually assaulted by Stephen Port over a three-year period from 2012 to 2015. That number is probably a lot higher when considering those who may have not come forward or those who aren't even aware they've been sexually assaulted. Case prosecutor Jonathan Rees QC said, All the offending behaviour was driven by one main factor, the defendant's appetite for sex with younger, gay males while they were unconscious through drugs. All of the material indicates that not only did he derive sexual gratification from viewing images concerning this particular sexual practice, but that he practiced it himself and was concerned about being caught. The explanation for why he should have wanted either to administer high levels of GHB and other drugs to the deceased, or cause them to have taken such drugs, is found in the evidence of the offences committed against those who are still alive. On November 25, 2016, Stephen Port was found guilty on all charges and handed a whole life order at the Old Bailey by Mr Justice Openshaw. Once he was sent to prison for the rest of his life, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, or IPCC, started looking into the actions taken by 17 different police officers. It was being considered as to whether or not they should face disciplinary action. In a 2018 inquest by the Independent Office for Police Conduct, or IOPC, fundamental failures by the police were found regarding the death of Anthony Walgate. The IOPC went on to say their failings likely contributed to the death of Gabriel Cavari, the second man killed by Stephen Port. No individual officer was ruled to have a case to answer for misconduct, but the inquest findings stated that the performance of nine officers fell below the standard required. It said it had identified systematic failings. The Metropolitan Police then apologised over the devastating findings of systematic failings. Jack's mum said, Stephen Port took Jack's life, but they let that happen as far as we're concerned. They are just as guilty as him. They should be held accountable for his death, as they could have prevented it, and we have to live with that for the rest of our lives. Whilst researching this case, I watched a BBC documentary titled How Police Missed the Grinder Killer. Originally airing on February 16th, 2017, the programme looked into the police's failings and it was a very useful resource whilst conducting my research. It's worth checking out for sure. Stephen Port was handed £136,000 in legal aid to fund his defence when he lodged an appeal against his murder convictions in order 2018. Don't know what grounds he thought he had to do that. Three months later, in November 2018, his appeal was naturally rejected. Between January 3rd and 5th, 2022, BBC One aired a three-part drama miniseries focusing on the events of this case. It stars Stephen Merchant as Stephen Port, as well as Sheridan Smith. I've not watched it yet, but it's got a decent rating on IMDb. In December 2021, significant police failings were found to have begun straight after the first murder by a jury at inquest for the four men killed by Stephen Port. The Metropolitan Police offered heartfelt apologies, but denied that the force was institutionally homophobic. And that was the story of British murderer Stephen Port. Thanks again to Millie M for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear what you all think about it. A bit longer than usual this week, I do appreciate that, but you could probably tell it has a lot of research available online. I wanted to do the case and the victim's justice. I've got a grand total of eight new reviews to read out this week, so please do bear with me. Thank you firstly, Apple Podcast user Kent Park Street for leaving British Murders a five-star review. Kent, who is based in Australia, said, a Brit- <laughs> I'm going to do my accent now, Kent. 
A British accent is very welcome. Quality all round. Research, production, presentation, a new regular. I hope I've not put you off listening with that again. <laughs> Thank you, Apple Podcast user Teeny Gee. Teeny G? Teeny Gee? For leaving British Murders a five-star review. They said, I'm really enjoying the podcast. Heard of most of the people involved. Also enjoying that people are commenting on his voice. He is a northern lad. What's not to like? Thank you, Apple Podcast user Josh T091190. Sound like a Terminator villain. For leaving British Murders a five-star review. Josh said, brilliant podcast, a definite must if you're interested in crime stories. Thank you, Apple Podcast user Ouch They All Taken for leaving British Murders a five-star review. They said, great voice and storytelling, professionally done. Thank you, Apple Podcast user Holly0306 for leaving British Murders a five-star review. Holly said, I started listening to this podcast a few weeks ago and haven't stopped listening. I really enjoy the format of each episode and, of course, the accent. Your recent interview episodes have been particular favourites and can't wait for more of these. Thank you, Apple Podcast user To Go Addict, for leaving British Murders a five star review. They said, Absolutely my favourite crime podcast. Stuart's tales of the macabre are engrossing whilst being bite sized enough to listen to on my work commute. Probably not this episode, but never mind. Very disappointed that I have now caught up after binging the entire back catalogue, but always look forward to the next instalment. Thank you, Podchaser user Vicky J. Coker, for leaving British Murders a five star review. Vicky J. said, What can I say that others haven't already? Whenever I have a spare five minutes to myself, I always pop on an episode of British Murders. Each episode is well researched and presented in a factual and concise manner. Stuart's sense of humour is right up my street. Can't wait for the next one. And thank you, finally, Ruthie, for leaving a five star rating and review on BritishMurders.com. Ruthie said, Really enjoy this podcast. The host is informative without being dry and funny without being insensitive. I love hearing a little about the history of the featured city and the story of the crime is always fascinating without being lurid. Not an easy line to walk, but Stuart manages to pull it off. Keep up the good work. Thanks again to Kent, Teeny G, Gee, Teeny something, Josh, and the numbers and letters after your name. Out they all taken, Holly, To Go Addict, Vicky J and Ruthie. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode? You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify, so please keep doing that. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each of those on my website. Thank you, Dave Danu, for buying me a beer via BuyMeACoffee.com slash BritishMurders. Dave said, Fave UK-focused true crime podcast. Your research is great. I also like you give context to listeners from overseas who might not be familiar with certain UK names and meanings. Pint on me, Stuart. Keep up the good work. Thank you also to Kylie Higgins for buying me a virtual brew via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. It's appreciated. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or just reach out via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. Whew, there we go. Long episode, but that is it for now, I promise. I appreciate you for sticking by this long. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.